The Iran deal is defective at its core. If we do nothing, we know exactly what will happen. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Hello, Absurdistanis, and welcome to Absurdistan, the transatlantic political podcast with news and opinion from our absurd political reality. My name is Adam. And my name is John. Today is the first in our series of monthly deep dives. This is a special program every month that we take a break in our regularly scheduled programming to bring you a deep dive into a topic. This month, in fact this week, we're going to be covering the Iran nuclear deal. Now obviously President Trump, as you'll know, has already withdrawn or has announced that he'll withdraw the United States from this deal. But it's something that John and I didn't actually know a lot about and we're assuming that you don't know too much of the details yourselves. It's generally a deal that's misunderstood. So what we're going to do today is look back at its history. We're going to look at the deal itself. We're going to look at the withdrawal that President Trump has just announced and its potential repercussions. So John and I have really enjoyed researching this. Uh, Hopefully at the end as well, we'll also have a little bit of a meta conversation about our uh, research tactic, because that in itself was quite educational. But this episode, because it's a bit of a deep dive, might be a little bit longer than usual. So we hope you stick with us and we hope you enjoy it. John, the Iran nuclear deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Where did it come from? To really understand the Iran nuclear deal and why it was necessary, I think we need to look at the actual Iranian nuclear program and where that came from in its history, because I think that will shed some light on the particular diplomatic issues that have really always been a problem between the United States and Iran and indeed the rest of the world and why the deal was formulated in the way it was. It kind of had to be in order to address the historical context. Iran's nuclear program can trace its beginning to the early 1950s. In December of 1953, then United States President Dwight Eisenhower gave a speech to the UN General Assembly regarding nuclear proliferation. This was a response to the use of nuclear weapons in World War II. At that time, the general perception of nuclear power was a negative one. We had just seen two entire cities leveled by two bombs, which was an unprecedented level of force. I mean, now we have video of all these nuclear tests, and we understand the sheer power of nuclear weapons. But this was a brand new concept back in the 1950s. And the idea that a war between two countries that had nuclear weapons could quite literally end humanity was terrifying. What Eisenhower tried to do was shed light on the positives of nuclear power and to draw attention away from its military uses and more towards its civilian applications for a near limitless source of energy. So in the speech that Eisenhower gave to the UN, he actually called for the formation of an international atomic energy agency. He actually used those words, and that's actually what we have now. We have the IAEA, which its purpose is to guarantee that countries that are researching nuclear power are doing so for peaceful purposes and not for military weapons. What was groundbreaking about this speech is that Eisenhower actually recommended all nations with nuclear technology to share their knowledge and actual fissionable materials like uranium with other countries that were trying to research nuclear power. And after this speech, the United States launched what was called the Atoms for Peace program. And they literally started sharing scientific knowledge and uranium with other countries, highly enriched uranium at that. One of the first countries to take advantage of this was India in 1955, which is interesting. When you look at the list of countries that have nuclear weapons, you see the US, Russia, UK, China, which all sort of makes sense. We know North Korea has them, but then you also have Pakistan and India, which seem just kind of random states to have nuclear weapons. And that can actually trace its beginnings to the United States and the international community actually assisting. India actually used a reactor that was built by the Canadians to use the plutonium byproduct of that reactor to create a nuclear weapon, and Pakistan did the same thing. India tested its first bomb in 1974, and Pakistan tested their first bomb in 1998, which is excellent for that region if you know anything about the relationship between India and Pakistan. Having them both be nuclear-armed powers is probably not a great thing. Iran actually tried to take advantage of this same program. And up until 1979, with the Iranian Revolution, the United States actually, and the rest of Europe, supported this growth because at the time, 
there was a pro-Western liberal leader, the Shah, in power. In 1967, the Tehran Nuclear Research Center was established, and the United States actually supplied a 5-megawatt reactor fueled by highly enriched uranium to the uh, Iranians. In 1968, Iran signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which will be important later, which subjected the Iran nuclear program to IAEA oversight. In the early 1970s, the Shah announced that by 2000, the year 2000, he wanted to have developed at least 23 nuclear reactors, and I think he said to be generating 30,000 megawatts of energy through nuclear power, which led to massive investment in the billions from the United States and Europe into the nuclear program. So much so that in 1976, President Gerald Ford signed a directive allowing Iran to buy U.S.-produced reprocessing plants designed specifically to extract plutonium from nuclear power plant fuel. Now, that seems odd because... Plutonium is almost exclusively used for nuclear weapons. International assistance like this continued through the 1970s with the Western-friendly Shah in power, but this quickly changed after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. The reformist liberalizer Shah was overthrown and replaced with a much more conservative Islamic theocrat, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and suddenly the concept of a nuclear-capable Iran transformed from an appealing and lucrative business venture to a stark international threat particularly to the fledgling state of Israel. So in the 1980s, there was a 180 in the United States foreign policy when it came to Iran. Far from being the supplier of uranium and technology to the Iranian nuclear program, the U.S. official line became that Iran must completely 100% stop uranium enrichment. The United States would not settle for anything less than a complete cessation of the Iran nuclear program. And because of this, the United States spent most of the 80s and 90s using its influence internationally to undermine any deals that were made between other nations and international organizations with Iran. The IAEA actually wanted to assist Iran in enriching uranium to reactor-grade concentrations, and the U.S. put a stop to that immediately. France was supplying enriched uranium to Iran, and the United States put immense diplomatic pressure on France to stop that. Argentina had a deal in place with Iran to help upgrade their facilities to convert highly enriched uranium to lower concentrations of uranium. And after withdrawing from this deal, Argentinian officials said it was really due to United States diplomatic pressure. China actually had a contract with Iran to construct a uranium conversion plant, and the United States convinced them to back out of the contract and not honor the terms. The point is, for as long as Iran has been an Islamic Republic, the United States has not changed its diplomatic position with regard to the nuclear program. It has always been a complete cessation of the nuclear program and no enrichment of uranium or bust. In the early 2000s, it was revealed that between 1998 and 2002, Iran had been participating in enrichment activities that it did not report to the IAEA. This was considered a violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, even though it technically wasn't. Iran's justification for this was the previous interventions by the United States. They said that if they hadn't done it in secret, the United States would have intervened and stopped it completely. And like I said, it technically wasn't a violation because at the time, Iran was only subject to what was called a six-months rule. They only had to report new nuclear activity to the IAEA six months before nuclear fuel was introduced to the facility. They were only in the planning stages. There was the planning phase rule that was only ratified by Iran in February of 2003, which required them to report a nuclear facility in its planning stages, but they weren't under this rule yet. And that was actually after the IAEA's investigation had already begun. So technically, given the rules that Iran was working with at the time, it wasn't a violation, but you could consider it shady. They were definitely trying to use loopholes in the rules to hide what they were doing. In May 2003, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Iranian officials went through a Swiss diplomatic channel to offer a full transparency of the Iran nuclear program to the United States, as well as withdrawal of Iranian support for Hamas and Hezbollah in exchange for normalized diplomatic relations and promises from the U.S. essentially that they wouldn't invade. Obviously, they were scared at the prospect of regime change just having seen what was going on in Iraq and the toppling of Saddam's government. This deal was even supported by the supreme leader Ayatollah Khomeini, who is definitely more of a hardliner, so it's surprising that he was on board with this. The IAEA investigation found that Iran had violated its obligations through a pattern of concealment, so not technically according to the rules, but they broke the spirit of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. 
And in response to the failures of Iran to reveal its enrichment activities, the UN Security Council passed a resolution in July 28th of 2006 to demand that Iran end all uranium enrichment by the end of August 2006. In response to this, Iran agreed to come back to the table to talk, but they refused to give up enrichment. That was their bottom line. And then on December 26, 2006, we saw the UN Security Council pass its first resolution imposing sanctions on Iran regarding its nuclear program. And if it did not end its uranium enrichment, then further sanctions would follow and they'd be stricter. And we've seen this happen. That was the first of seven resolutions adding or extending sanctions. And that's really the context that we came into for the Iran nuclear deal between 2006 and 2015, IAEA reports, essentially they couldn't confirm that Iran was only using their nuclear capabilities for peaceful purposes, but they also reported that there was no indication after 2009 that Iran was pursuing nuclear weapons materials in any way. But even after 2006, the the pattern of Iranian behavior relative to their nuclear program was iffy. I wasn't helped by the fact that in 2005-2006 there was a hardliner Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who you might remember from the uh, mid-2000s, being one of the big baddies of the American political scene. Uh, he, he was elected and he was a hardliner and he advocated for the enrichment of uranium for, well, diplomatically speaking, energy purposes. And of course there were no weapons per Ahmadinejad, but you know, at the same time their track record wasn't good, even through that 2006 to 2013 period. Certainly Iran couldn't be trusted even up until negotiations started. No, I would, I would agree with that. Ahmadinejad was definitely a hardliner, and it's definitely not ideal that we would have Iran seeking nuclear weapons, but I think the biggest issue that was going on was their enrichment programs were being done secretly, or they were trying to shroud it in secrecy, and there wasn't a whole lot of transparency. And that's what led to a lot of the questionable activities that happened between 2006 and 2013. They built an entire secondary enrichment plant at Fordow that was built entirely in secret and wasn't released. The IAEA wasn't notified of this. An entire secondary enrichment facility. So really, actually, I'm amazed that the Americans jumped in at the opportunity to start a deal, to be honest. like The, the fact that the Obama administration was willing to consider this, I find actually quite surprising, given the history and the context of Iran's position and behavior on nuclear and uranium enrichment in particular. Like While they always maintained that there were no weapons, that it was used for energy, their behavior didn't point to that. No, I agree with that. I think that a lot of it was also political posturing, considering the context of that region at the time with the United States heavily involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. Do I trust Iran with nuclear weapons? Absolutely not. Do I think that in those years they were close to being able to produce a bomb? Probably not. They're much closer now. And I think that's sort of what triggered the Obama administration intervening because they were getting fairly close to being able to actually create at least one bomb that we know of. And so I think the acceleration of that program probably wasn't helped by the context of what was going on in the area. The Iranian regime knows, especially with the Bush administration, that there were people keen to overthrow the regime. The Iranian military wouldn't be able to really do much about that other than to have a functioning nuclear program and to have a hardliner in Ahmadinejad, it makes sense that they would seek these types of things. I mean, we've seen that happen in North Korea where the nuclear program is very much being used as a deterrent to invasion by other world powers. And yet with Iran's continued enrichment of uranium, whether it was for energy or weapon, you had Israel still threatening direct military action against Iran if uh, the U.S.'s biggest ally, by the way, if Iran kept on going down this path. I mean, that's not surprising either, given Iran's rhetoric towards Israel in the past. It's talked about how there's a need for Israel to be wiped off the map. So obviously, I mean, I'm not faulting Israel at all at being wary of a nuclear Iran. But at the same time, in my opinion, and we'll get to this later, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Iran definitely needs to have restrictions on what it's doing. It would be ideal if Iran was not enriching uranium at all, and they didn't have a nuclear program. But the fact is that given the history of the region, given the history of the United States' involvement, they have a nuclear program. The, the problem is up until the deal, what we had was brinksmanship, essentially. I mean, other than this deal, Iran is always said it's not going to give up its enrichment activities. It, it's not going to stop doing it. The only other way to stop it then is regime change. 
And we've seen how well that's worked out in Iraq and the fallout from that. So other than a full-scale invasion and toppling of the, the regime in Iran, the only other way to get them to stop their nuclear program is through diplomacy. And I think that's where this deal came from because the, the prospect of a war between Israel and Iran is not ideal. I mean, that would be <laughs> absolutely catastrophic in a region that's already unstable as it was with the toppling of, of Saddam. You used a great word in there, catastrophic. The IAEA director, Mohammed al-Baradei, at the time, said that military intervention of any type in Iran would have been catastrophic and ultimately counterproductive. And so he was, I believe, this is the, he was the first one, anyway, that I came across, that recommended a double simultaneous suspension of sanctions and enrichment. And this idea was actually posited, I think, in 2007, but it wasn't taken up until the Obama administration uh, in 2013 right. when it opened secret talks with Iran in Oman. And then you talk about brinksmanship and the need for moderation. It actually took the election of a new president, President Rouhani, uh, in August 2013 for out-in-the-open discussions and negotiations to commence. And they started on the basis of El-Baradei's recommendations, uh, which was a sanction drop in exchange for the dropping of the enriching of uranium. Yeah, a big turning point was the election of Rouhani because although he is what any Western nation would consider a, a conservative, a theocrat. He is known in Iran as more of a moderate, definitely more moderate than Ahmadinejad was, and he was more open to coming to the table. I don't think that this deal happens without Rouhani in, in power. In fact, the way that the Iranian government is structured, you have the Ayatollah, who is the supreme leader, and then you have the president under him, who is you know, Rouhani. And there's a, a balancing act of the priorities of the Ayatollah over the diplomatic duties of the, of the president. And it, they definitely have contradicting views of how they need to deal with the U.S. The Ayatollah has been skeptical and in, in, in some cases not supportive of a deal with the United States. He doesn't trust the West at all. And for Rouhani to take that step was a huge political risk for him uh, in the nation of Iran. I don't think that this deal even the, – the talks even begin without Rouhani. And I don't think that they actually begin without Obama either because I gave you the history. The United States has always pushed for a complete end of the nuclear program in Iran and Iran has always said that it will not stop enriching uranium. What Obama brought to the scene was – and he took a lot of flack for this. This was very controversial. In a presidential debate, he actually said that he would go to the table with Iran without preconditions. Now, this was – this was a complete departure from prior administrations that just did not talk to Iran until they were able to come to the table and say that they would stop enriching uranium. To, to take that stance and say that, you know, I'm going to come to the table without these preconditions, I, I think that's another reason. That's one of the only reasons that this deal or even the talks started in the first place. So you had a more moderate Rouhani come into power. You had definitely a more moderate, at least when it comes to foreign policy, Barack Obama come into power. And given the, I don't want to say hawkishness of Israel in the area and really the rest of the United States government, these things were coming to a head and a deal had to be put in place because otherwise I think this probably would have led to some sort of conflict. It was just a miracle in itself that a deal happened, but obviously the context of the situation, as you said, the brinksmanship almost necessitated a deal. Unfortunately, we had the people, Obama and Rouhani, in office to actually facilitate it. So do you actually want to get into the deal itself? Absolutely. Okay, so this is uh, this is what I enjoy, is just the, the nitpicking little details of uh, intergovernmental agreements. So this is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. And it's important to note that in the beginning, Obama's emphasis was on separating the nuclear capacity and plans of Iran versus its actual dealings militarily and diplomatically in its region. How it deals with Shia militants, Hezbollah, uh, its role in the Middle East, that was set aside and the focus was entirely on uh, its nuclear program. Which is really interesting. Whether you trust it or not or think it was in good faith or not, when you, when Iran came to the United States and said that they would withdraw their their support from Hamas and Hezbollah, mm. In, in exchange for promises that they wouldn't get invaded and actually diplomatic relations opening with the United States and other countries. The Bush administration 
did not even respond. They didn't give a negative response. They just didn't respond at all. And I mean, you can be skeptical and cynical about it, which I tend to be. I don't I don't necessarily trust Iran when they said that, you know, they would completely remove their support from Hamas and Hezbollah. But I mean, you don't know until you at least go to the table and try to work things out. And I think that we had to have a deal that was centered only around the nuclear program because in Iran's eyes, I think that ship had sailed about addressing their support of Shia military because they had already brought that to the table and it was rebuffed or not even rebuffed, not even responded to. But what you'll find, and I'll be discussing this later on when I come to critique the deal, is that it was actually a Bush doctrine in his second term with Condoleezza Rice as his secretary of state that began to make this neat little separation between the nuclear program and the rest of Iran's dealings in the Middle East. And it is one of the pitfalls of the deal. And I'll get to that when I get to critique it, which I'm so looking forward to. But anyway, let's get into the deal itself. The simplest way to understand the deal is that it is the dropping of sanctions implemented on Iran by the Security Council, the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and particularly from the United States secondary sanctions, which I'll explain a little later. But all of that for the decline and almost the elimination of the enrichment of uranium. So very simple sanctions for uranium enrichment. On Iran's side, the nuclear side, Iran agreed that its stockpile of low enriched uranium would be reduced by 98% for 15 years and that their ability to enrich would be limited to a 3.67% enrichment, which was enough for research but not enough for weapons. After 15 years, Iran could expand its nuclear program again. Yeah, that's right. They actually had, before the deal, about 10,000 kilograms of low enriched uranium, which is uranium generally enriched to a percentage of less than 20%. You can't make a bomb out of anything less than between 85 and 90%. So limiting it to 3.67% is even lower than the highest threshold for low enriched uranium at 20%. So really, if you think about it, this is a severe limitation on their ability to enrich uranium. And they got rid of a whole lot of uranium. They had about 10,000 kilograms, and after this deal, they were required to reduce that to 300 kilograms, which really wouldn't even be enough for a, a single bomb. Interestingly enough, though, this extra uranium was funneled out of the country to places like Russia. Indeed, to allies, so that per it could perhaps be stored for later use. Iran also agreed to store two-thirds of its centrifuges. These are devices that enrich nuclear fuel. It limited the country to 5,060 centrifuges, which were capable of enriching uranium. That sounds like a lot, 5,060, but that was reduced from 20,000. So that's quite a reduction. That's, that's about two-thirds of its centrifuges just not being used. That's right, and they were all limited to one location, the Natanz Enrichment Plant. Uh, Fordo, the new plant, wasn't able to store any of these centrifuges. So effectively, it limits the ability to enrich for 15 years. Iran was able, though, to continue researching and developing, but this research and development was limited in the first eight years. After eight years, open research and development. Also, the Arak Heavy Water Research Reactor was to be redesigned and modernized with the oversight of the countries that were in agreement. So this is the European Union, the UK, US, China, and Russia. And this was to ensure that it would be used for peaceful research, for energy research, and not for weapons research. Beyond the redevelopment of the Arak plant, there was no new development in new facilities, again, for 15 years. Heavy water, by the way, is an essential component in some reactors, and it's used to produce nuclear weapons, hence the desire to limit Iran's capabilities in producing it. The research plant at Fordo was to be redeveloped into a physics and technology centre and again limited in its ability to do nuclear research. I'll just add that that was a big thing for Iran to give as well because this was, this was their newest state-of-the-art centre that they built for nuclear enrichment and to convert that to or only a research centre was a pretty big give. And yet they do get to keep it, it didn't get destroyed and it comes back online in 15 years. Potentially. Potentially. Iran also implemented an additional protocol allowing the monitoring and verifications of all these provisions in perpetuity. In perpetuity, that's a really important key here. So long as that it remains part of the non-proliferation treaty. Effectively, allow the IAEA to access all of its facilities at any point. 
The IAEA is the International Atomic Energy Agency, and that will be given oversight over the entire supply chain, and it has round-the-clock access to both Fordow and Natanz, and there are now triple the number of inspectors there, uh, about 150, tripling up from 50. They also have the ability to request to inspect anything that they want regarding the nuclear program, and Iran has 24 days to comply with allowing them into the country to to conduct their inspection. This sounds like it gives Iran some leeway or maybe some time to cover up some activities, but we're not talking about a traditional crime scene here. We're talking about uranium-235, which has a half-life of 703 million years. It's not as easy to cover that up as traditional military operations. For instance, in the early 2000s, the IAEA actually found traces of uranium enriched uranium in Iran that were from missiles from Pakistan that actually had been moved through the country. So the evidences of enriching uranium breaking this deal are not something that can just be wiped away and cleaned up in a a few short weeks. That's right. It's not something you're going to be able to cover up uh, in the matter of three weeks. What is also important, though, is that there is a kind of a back and forth between the signatories so that Iran has up to five weeks, really, Uh, to take care of any of the concerns brought to the IAEA before the automatic snapback of sanctions, if anything, is seen uh, to have been going wrong. And one of the interesting provisions there is that there is a a vote taken by the co-signatories of the Iran deal, so much so that uh, a simple majority could lead to the end of the deal. Vetoes don't count. It means that Russia and China can be outvoted and the deal dissolved. So that's the details of what Iran was required to do, their side of the bargain. Adam, I know we disagree on the effectiveness of this deal and whether it's a good thing, but can we at least agree that these restrictions are fairly significant? The attempts by the Trump administration to categorize these as weak requirements are probably not true, at least for the first 10 years of the deal. That's True, but I think that's the problem is the fact that there is the sunset clause. Like the, the fact that there are these 8 and 10 and 15 year uh, limitations, you know, the question is, what well, one, are the limitations actually long enough? Two, do they actually stop Iran from pursuing research and development that could ultimately lead to, in 8 or 10 or 15 years, a quicker means by which they can produce a nuclear weapon? And three, that five-week interlude where concerns can be filed by the IAEA and the eventual dissolution of the deal, how far can Iran push that boundary? Can they get away with little things? Because as soon as the IAEA comes to the co-signatories of the deal and says, well, Iran's broken this little law, so is the deal then going to dissolve simply because there is a small infraction to the deal? In other words, one of the biggest critiques of this deal is that it would take a real serious breach by Iran for it to be dissolved. Perhaps not, though. I mean, we just withdrew from it, and there's no indication that they're not following the deal. No, that's that's true, but it's it's a weakness in the deal, as in that there's a lot of pressure on the West in particular to maintain the deal. Obviously, no longer. And so, at what point would they have been willing to say no? Let's scrap it. Because if you listen to some of the rhetoric of the U.S., uh, sorry, the U.K., France, and Germany, they are very much for the deal, and so it might allow Iran to kind of push that envelope a little bit to the point in which you know they can get away with a little more than what's actually allowed by the deal. There were a few additional provisions added, which saw the. 300 kilogram limit, for instance, on enriched uranium increased by a little bit. The sunset clause was shortened a little bit, down to eight years. I think that was, it was originally 10, uh, if I remember correctly. So there are certain things in which Iran has the capability to kind of stretch and maneuver within the deal. Now, I think it's interesting that you bring up those points. I have some responses, but let's get to the rest of the deal first, and then we can talk about that later. All right. So in exchange for the stopping, or the limitation of uranium enrichment, the West agreed to lift sanctions. So after there was verification by the IAEA that everything had been done on the Iran side to minimize, to uh, get rid of the extra uranium, to put its centrifuges in storage, etc., 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 all UN sanctions would be lifted. These are the sanctions that we mentioned earlier that were imposed by the UN Security Council, which is said to have unfrozen about $100 billion in overseas frozen assets that Iran now had the capability of using. It was unfrozen. That's true. There was $100 billion, give or take, 
that was frozen overseas in accounts that was going back to Iran now. However, I've seen estimates that only about $50 billion of that was actually usable because the rest of it was already tied up in, in commitments and deals around the globe. It was just that now Iran had this money to to spend towards those deals. So, Indeed. so when you take that out net, they only got about $50 billion. And I say only, that's a lot of money, but as far as as far as the Iranian economy and government spending in general, it wasn't it wasn't this isn't an insane amount of money. In addition, after eight years, UN sanctions on Iranian companies, individuals, and institutions would be lifted. Obviously, we hadn't even got to that point yet. And the US also agreed that it would lift its secondary sanctions. I mentioned these earlier. These are sanctions on non-American companies doing business with Iran. Primary sanctions would be sanctions on American companies doing business with Iran. So effectively, the U.S. can use its economic might to say to European companies, for instance, if you do dealing with Iran, we're not going to be doing any deals with you. So choose Iran or choose the biggest economy in the world. The U.S. can push its weight around. So the U.S. is only lifting its secondary sanctions. The primary sanctions were to remain in place because those sanctions are related to Iran's ballistic missile program, for instance, and human rights violations and support of terrorism such as Hezbollah and other Shia militants, etc., etc., etc. Those were all to remain in place. So there was no new sanctions to be imposed by the U.S., by the EU, by the U.N., and some sanctions would be lifted. Yes, in relation to the nuclear program, the United States did impose new sanctions on Iran in 2017. This actually caused quite a kerfuffle. The Iranian government essentially argued that this was a violation of the deal. The United States promised that they wouldn't impose new sanctions, yet they did over missile tests in 2017. So there was some tension over this in the first place. The important thing is how it's defined. Is it defined as a primary sanction or a secondary sanction? Because the deal only covers secondary sanctions. So if the U.S. can say to the world stage, no, this is a primary sanction, then it doesn't affect the deal. But you can see where the controversy comes in, especially when it literally comes down to definitions. Right, so that is actually the deal effectively in itself. It's, like I said, a very simple, you stop enriching uranium, we lift these sanctions on you. It's remarkably simple. And it's very misunderstood. It's, it's funny that it's, it's so misunderstood because really when you look at the details of it, it's not complicated at all. I mean, you, you can sum it up in a paragraph. In a sentence, even. It's, it's very, very simple. And uh, to my amazement, after having read through a lot of this stuff, the world reaction to this was overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly positive from countries, governments, uh, people, uh, people groups, I mean, in terms of like, popular opinion. As far as I know, the only world leader that came out vehemently against it was Netanyahu. And I, I guess we could say that there's no surprise there, but Israel in itself, while the government was certainly against it, there were certain uh, factions within the society that did actually agree with it. Unsurprisingly, the Arab-Israeli Joint League, which is a political party that represents Arab-Israelis, and yes, they do exist, they were in support of it. But they weren't the only ones. You had Ami Ayalon, who was the former head of the Shin Bet, which is the Israeli Internal Security Service. Uh, you had Ephraim Halavani, who was the former head of Mossad. You had Chuck Freilich, who was the former national security advisor in Israel. All, all these guys were stating support. So there were certain contingents of Israeli society that were also in agreement with it. Which is actually incredible to me that heads of intelligence agencies in Israel were in support of it. The people who probably had the deepest knowledge of what was going on in the Iranian nuclear program were supporters of this deal. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, the only state actors that were really against it were Israel and North Korea. Obviously, North Korea had no interest in unilateral disarmament and didn't like where things were going, but that's Until kind of Until two updated. weeks ago. Exactly. That's kind of an updated situation now that we'll get to at some point. But in the U.S., all Republicans were against the deal and even some Democrats, and that's why it was implemented by executive order, and that's why it can be undone by executive order. That's right. Only 150 Democrats supported it, which was enough to actually hold up a presidential uh, veto. So if Congress had come in and said, we're not going to do this, you know, we're not going to ratify it, and we're going to reject this deal that the president has made, if Obama had vetoed the decision of Congress, then there were enough Democratic votes to over overturn the decision of Congress and to side with the president on his veto. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting looking back now how much opinion shifts as well. And we might even get to 
the vote of Chuck Schumer, for instance. Nonetheless, America's greatest ally, Canada, was also a little bit iffy on it. I love this. This is stereotypically Canadian. Uh, the Harper government at the time issued this statement. We appreciate the efforts of the P5 plus one, that's all the co-signatories, to reach an agreement. At the same time, we will continue to judge Iran by its actions and not its words. Like, God bless Canada. Like, that is the most level-headed approach to this thing I think I've seen. So. <laughs> Interestingly, when you get into expert opinion, experts themselves are largely divided, even within the same research departments. However, most experts do seem to be in support of the deal, and there are, of course, dissenting voices. Uh, and then what I found really fascinating is that in the States at the time, both Iranian and Jewish Americans were in favor of the deal. There you go, bringing two communities together under a single deal. It's, uh, that really surprised me. How often can you get that sort of agreement? Right, which you know makes me think that not only is Trump wrong, but thanks to all of the reading that I've been doing, particularly on the contrarian side, how much I must be wrong as well. Because how can so many people agree with this deal in, in such a way that it brings competing communities together, literally. Oh, I, it's, I, I don't understand it. There must be something good about the deal, and I, I personally haven't seen it yet, and we'll get to that in a second. It is great that all these communities came together, but that may ultimately be all for naught, because as we know this week, Trump pulled the United States out of the deal, and he's signed a presidential memorandum to reimpose sanctions on Iran. And actually... Uh, he said that he's going to impose even stronger sanctions. So everything that we saw before, including the secondary sanctions of the United States and potentially more strict sanctions are coming. Well, that's right. And particularly the secondary sanctions, those are the interesting ones because that means that the U.S. can effectively hold European corporations hostage in a sense. Again, that, well, you can deal with Iran or you can deal with the biggest market in the world. I find this really interesting and I'd like your thoughts on this. The U.S. is putting its cards on the table. It's saying, you deal with Iran or you deal with us. Is there any possible universe in which Europe, European companies say, no, we'd rather deal with the globe than your isolationist policies? Because effectively, Europe could turn to the U.S. and say, well, look, if you want to be isolationist, go on, be isolationist, go away. To be honest, I think that's more likely than the other way around. I think that... Really? Oh, yeah, I do. I, I think that there is a concerted effort in this administration to isolate the United States from the world. In Trump's inauguration speech, his biggest theme was America first, which I took at the time and interpreted as America only. I don't think that Trump has too much of an interest in working with other countries, I mean, at least when it doesn't benefit the United States. And if he doesn't view the Iran deal as benefiting the United States, then he's going to withdraw from it, which he did, obviously. We've been put in a position where whether you believe him or not, we have Hassan Rouhani sounding more reasonable maybe than the president of the United States, saying that they are going to do everything that they can to renegotiate this or negotiate with the remaining members and stay in the deal. Mm. All the other signatories except the United States have vowed to stay do what they can to stay in this deal. So by putting back in place these secondary sanctions, you're really talking about not only isolating us ourselves because we're not party to this deal anymore, we're further isolating ourselves because we're going to make enemies that we wouldn't have if we hadn't pulled out of this. If Europe stays in this deal and European countries want to continue doing business with Iran and there are incentives for them to do so, you're going to see sanctions war essentially between the United States and Europe. I mean, if you really think about it, if the United States can't be trusted to stay in agreements that it makes with other countries, even though the other countries, there's no indication that they are not upholding their side of the bargain, what incentive does anybody have to deal with the United States? What incentive does somebody like North Korea have to deal with the United States when we're talking about making a nuclear deal with them, a nuclear pact with them, and going into the negotiations we're withdrawing from a deal that we made not even five years ago. And the other side has not violated the deal. I think money is the only incentive you need. Like, even if the European countries all say, right, we're going to stick with the Iranian nuclear deal, and yet European companies say, well, we're not going to trade the United States for Iran, like, that's just a ridiculous option. 
uh, companies will self-censure, they'll self-sanction in a sense, and they'll continue to work with the US. When Iran takes its grand tour around Europe trying to figure out whether it's economically beneficial to actually remain under the deal, and they're finding that there's a number of European companies in particular willing to have nothing to do with them, they might determine that it's not economically beneficial and go back to enriching uranium. So uh, almost, I, I think the entire thing will be driven by economics. So as soon as the European countries value or place value on, say, let's call it world peace if you want to give it like a really big value versus economics, sure, the European countries might even choose world peace over economics, but the companies themselves will have nothing to do with it. It will be an economic thing. It won't be a political thing, I think, in the end, and eventually Iran will just go back to doing what it was uh, going to be doing anyway. Do you think that European nations might intervene? I think that, no, I don't think so. I think that they will try, they will say to Iran, look, we want to stay with this deal, but they're not going to stop European companies self-sanctioning, in effect. I'm not talking about stopping them from self-sanctioning. I mean, they're a private company. But perhaps, I mean, in the United States, you see all the time we give incentives to corporations to do certain things. So maybe there will be certain tax incentives to corporations in the EU if they opt to continue doing business with Iran that would perhaps level out the effect of U.S. sanctions. Do you see that potentially happening? I would struggle to see that happening, one, because I don't think that is the same tradition, let's say, of tax schemes for corporations to kind of force them to trade one way or the other as there is in the States. And simultaneously, I just can't see the European Union in particular choosing Iran and the UK especially, choosing Iran over the United States. Like, wh- whether you want to call that economic, political, diplomatic, moral, ethical, like, I, I just don't, I don't see it happening. Now, obviously, there's a lot of back and forth, uh, and John, we've already kind of had this back and forth ourselves on whether the deal was a good thing or not. Now, I set myself a challenge this week uh, for this research in particular, I left the United States in 2013, and this was just before the secret negotiations between Iran and the United States started happening. And obviously they didn't come to light until about 2015, two years after I was kind of outside of the circle of the States. Not only did I not know much about the deal itself, I was just not in the political atmosphere of the States to have an opinion on it one way or the other. I was fairly neutral. And so I set myself the task this week of only reading contrarian views. So in other words, those views that go against the majority of the opinion that actually support Trump in withdrawing the deal. I read a bunch of conservative media, Israeli media, and it's amazing how much it's affected me. So John, I'm assuming that you would agree with the deal and disagree with Trump's withdrawal of the US from the deal. Yes, absolutely. Why? Why? What is your main argument for that? I'm well aware that the deal is not perfect. Obviously, in an ideal world, Iran would not be enriching uranium. They would not have a successful nuclear program. They wouldn't be on the verge of creating a nuclear weapon. However, that is the situation in which we find ourselves. They're going to do that regardless. And the only other way to stop it would be direct intervention in the way of a war, toppling the regime. Obviously, sanctions don't work, right? Obviously, the sanctions were not accomplishing their goal. We started those sanctions in 2006, and that did little to nothing to stop their enrichment of uranium and their program from moving forward. The IAEA has told us that since 2009, there's no credible evidence of them seeking to develop a nuclear weapon, but their enrichment activities have continued, which has been the main goal in foreign policy of the United States to stop Iran from enriching uranium completely. So this deal does not stop that, which is a negative. However, It is unprecedented. I believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant and that if Iran is going to be developing nuclear capabilities, they should be heavily regulated and have the strictest oversight, which for the first 10 years of this deal, that does do. I think it's naive to think that Obama could have gone in there and gotten the perfect deal or a deal that 100% favored the United States. We didn't give up all that much. There's a lot of rumors floating around that the United States paid cash to Iran, that we gave them all this money, when in reality, the $100 billion that was frozen outside of Iran 
was their own money. They're only getting about $50 billion of that, so only about half of it. And there was an additional $1.7 billion that was delivered in cash. However, that was due to Iran paid the United States $400 million for arms for for missiles back in the 70s when the Shah was in power. After the revolution, obviously, the United States didn't honor that deal. And so they gave that money back as part of the deal as as a sign of good faith, as well as interest that had accrued on that money that we had taken payment for, but not delivered anything for. So this was money that Iran had already given us. This wasn't necessarily a cash handout. Other than that, the United States gave up very little other than reducing sanctions. What we got in return was number one, and I think most important, even above the reduction in its nuclear capabilities, number one, we got the semblance of a diplomatic relationship with Iran, which we've not had for 40 years. We have a severe restriction on their nuclear program, and we've gone over these requirements. I think you would agree with me that for at least the first 10 years of the deal, it is a severe restriction. So while it's not perfect, I think it's a good first step. And I think that Some people say it's kicking the can down the road. What I say is that it gave us more time because if we had done nothing, we would have had an Iran that would probably have been capable of getting a nuclear weapon within probably even less than a year before this deal. I think the estimates were that they could have developed a nuclear weapon, at least one warhead, within two to three months. And we know with nuclear weapons, it really only takes one to set off some pretty bad consequences. It's highly suspected, we don't know for sure because they obfuscate this point, that Israel has nuclear weapons. So we have Israel, which is likely already armed with nuclear weapons in the Middle East, and then you'd have Iran, who hates Israel, and Israel, who hates Iran, having a nuclear weapon. We've bought ourselves at least 10 years, or we had bought ourselves 10 years when going into this deal, to not only not have Iran have a weapon, but to have unprecedented access to the Iran nuclear program. We have much more knowledge about what's going on and understanding of their capabilities going into further negotiations. I'm not talking about letting this deal lapse and then saying it was a success. I'm talking about extending this and figuring out a way to make it more permanent, figuring out a way to make what we're doing permanent, figuring out a way to even further reduce the the nuclear program in Iran. And I think that you've squandered that opportunity by pulling out of it. We had an opportunity to continue negotiations and make a better deal without withdrawing from it completely. And I think that it's, it's, it's short-sighted to do that. You know, those are actually, you know, really good points. And it's a lot of the, uh, it's a number of the points that I came across, you know, while I was reading as well. The problem is that they are almost like soft outcomes of the deal. To take Trump's line, you, know, you could say that the deal was defective at its core, or at its core it was defective, whatever he said. And the problem is, is because it's such a narrow and limited view that it's still around Iran to operate in other areas of global politics that were a, a significant detriment to American and European interests. So, for instance, you had the double head viper, essentially, of the fact that the it was only the nuclear program that was covered, not the other Iranian shenanigans going on in the Middle East, uh, that split down the middle, ignored the fact that Iran is supporting Hezbollah, Shia militants that's getting involved in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen more recently. Coupled that with the sanctions, and yes, you say that there's only you know 50 billion of that that they can use, but that is still a heck of an amount of money to be able to fund Shia militants, to be able to fund uh, Hezbollah, to be able to invest it in its military. And, you know, similar to Russia, Iran is going to it's going to invest in its military first. The Revolutionary Guard gets a huge amount of the annual budget in Iran every every year, every two years, whenever they set their budgets. So you had that, that double-headed snake if effectively working. That's true. In Trump's speech withdrawing the United States from the deal, he did mention that the military budget of Iran went up by 40%. This was exaggerated. It's probably more about 30%, but I think it's... Oh, mo- only 30%. Only a full third. Yeah, but that's not the point. As a percentage of government spending, it only went up 0.4%. So it went from 154 in 2015 to 158 in 2017. And even United States intelligence agencies don't expect that to go up. And then... As a percentage of GDP, it went from 2.6% to 3.1%, which for comparison, the United States' investment from its GDP in, in military spending is 3.3%. 
So it's not out of line with what other countries are spending on their military, and it's more a symptom of a growing economy just based on the fact that these sanctions are being lifted more than anything. It's not necessarily evidence of a concerted effort to militarize. Well, of course, because Iran itself doesn't necessarily have to militarize because it can literally outsource its military operations to militant groups, to Hezbollah, to the organizations working in Syria and Iraq and Yemen. In partic- Again, Yemen in particular is a huge deal. That is in itself a proxy for a Saudi-Iranian war. You know, so of course those aren't going to be in the public budgets for the military, but now you have you know, a massive amount of money that, even if it's not entirely going towards these types of investments, let's call them, there's certainly the freedom for Iran to do so. What bothers me about that, though, Adam, is that the United States supports Saudi Arabia as well, which also funds terrorism. I think it's just hypocritical to draw this line at states that sponsor terrorism. Russia has sponsored terrorism in the past. Like, we sponsor rebels in Syria. Actually, the CIA and the Pentagon backed two separate factions. We backed al-Nusra. We backed al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became ISIS. But the biggest problem, though, there is that the Americans are literally allowing Iran who is in opposition to it to invest in those groups so it would be i'm not saying that they're that either side are morally they're not morally correct in, in what they do in terms of supporting terrorism because you're right they su- support militant groups you know from a bunch of different countries in the world but the fact that america is giving iran the capability to do it that's the problem that's the that's the dis- uh, the part of the deal that doesn't work well, right, but we're also giving that same capability to Saudi Arabia. I mean, think about it, Adam. 19 of the 22 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi Arabian. There's a difference between the Saudi regime and the Wahhabi ideology that operates under the surface of Saudi Arabia. No, you're right. Like, there's no, there's no perfect way of doing that. The fact that you publicly do it in terms of a, uh, an international agreement that literally has in its... Uh, the point of the agreement, the means by which Iran is able to invest in these types of things. It gets the money back and it has the freedom to invest what it wants. I understand that, but at the same time, 9-11 was funded by elements within the Saudi government. It maybe wasn't a a official stance of the Saudi government, but that's almost worse. We are dealing with them on, on a superficial level. We're you know, providing them with arms. We just gave them a $3 billion arms deal. We buy their oil. We support them financially quite a bit. And we're also helping, you know, bomb Yemen. Like we, we are we are helping in that proxy war on the other side. So Right, exactly. I, I, I almost I I mean I take umbrage with the fact that we are giving funds, massive amounts of funds to Saudi Arabia, who are also sponsoring these type of type, types of things around the world. That's right, but they're not targeting currently the United States. That's the big difference. But when's the last time Iran attacked the United States? It's not. It's not attacking the states. That's what I'm saying. Is that it is not in the what Iran wants to invest in is not in the interest of the American state. Whereas what 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 Saudi Arabia wants to invest in is in the interest of the American state currently. Well, potentially, and I, well, I think the larger issue is that we ha- we do have a cold war in the Middle East between Iran and Saudi Arabia. We're on the side of Saudi Arabia, and it doesn't help that Iran is also allied with you know Syria, Russia. So. Another issue, and this is one that Trump took particular aim at, was the sunset clauses, the 8, the 10, and the 15-year clauses that would have ended the Iranian part of the responsibility in the deal. You say that it's not kicking the can down the line. I actually do say that it is kicking the can down the line, and it's, it's specifically because of this issue, something called breakout time. This is the amount of time that it would take for Iran to develop enough material for a single weapon. Now, you were right. Before the deal, it was only going to take, or the breakout time for Iran was only two or three months. And within the first 10 years of the deal, within the medium-term sunset clause, that would have been elongated out to one year. So that if Iran did break the Iran nuclear deal, then it would take a full year for them to reinvest and up their capabilities enough to actually produce one weapon. In the last five years of the deal, Again, in the time in which there's no EU sanctions, there's no UN sanctions, there's no American secondary sanctions, that moves back to two to three months. In fact, some estimates out of the Belfer Center at Harvard say that in year 15, in the last year of the deal, again, in which there is no sanctions, that that capability, that breakout time could be as low as two to three weeks. So it's 
I mean, you say that it's not kicking the can down the line, but that's a big problem for the West in particular 10 years from now, a decade from now. And if you listen to the rhetoric, particularly from France, the UK and Germany, it is very much a, no, we'll deal with it later on type of attitude. There are sunset provisions on the production of uranium, but there are no sunset provisions on the fact that Iran is not allowed under this deal to create a nuclear weapon. Well, wait until year 15, break it, and then suddenly you're on a two to three week run before you've got a fully operate or you've got enough material to develop an operational nuclear weapon. And I understand that concern, Adam, but I think that we, I, I honestly think that world leaders wouldn't let it get to that point at you know, at the 10-year mark or even before then, we'd need to create a new deal and and figure something else out at that point. But I think that breaking this deal right now makes it so that Iran is going to be able to get a nuclear weapon. And then what is what I want to ask you is, other than this, other than trying to open up some sort of diplomatic channel here that maybe could be productive in the future, what is the other option? I think the Trump administration is looking to develop a new deal that would include those, one, that double-headed snake thing that would probably lengthen out sunset clauses because 10 years is not a lot in terms of the international scene, let's say international politics, international relations. I understand that, but what are the odds that Iran would ever come to the table with the Trump administration knowing that not being able to trust them to stay in a deal that they commit to? No, that's a fair point. But what are the odds that a deal ever happened? Remember, this deal was originally called a miracle, the fact that it happened. So, again, obviously, Iran would have to be incentivized into it. So, um, you know, barring speculation that, sorry, America could even drop its primary sanctions for uh, the complete denuclearization, including research and development of Iran. You know, that is still technically a possibility. Yeah, I'm skeptical of that because Iran has always well, and, held... And, and so am I. Right. Iran has always held that it will not stop enriching uranium. And that's one of their their preconditions that they will just not agree to. So if from my view, this deal, while not perfect, provides us with at least a foot in the door to be able to perhaps negotiate something else and perhaps not let this escalate to a full-out hot war. I mean, if need be, if our intelligence agencies say that Iran is two to three weeks away from developing a nuclear weapon, I'm okay at that point with a preemptive strike. Honestly, I really am. However, we have the opportunity at this point to not let it get to there and perhaps find a diplomatic solution to this problem. I think that scrapping this deal right now, uh, really, what I see here is a lot of the influence from somebody like John Bolton and even Mike Pompeo already. Pompeo, who in his confirmation hearings, he admitted that there's no evidence that Iran has violated the deal. John Bolton has always pushed for regime change in Iran. I think withdrawing ourselves from this deal almost makes that an an inevitability at this point. Regime change in Iran? Oh, yes. Really? Forcibly from the United States and and maybe a coalition. I'm I'm unconvinced. I I think that the the world order, in a sense, I don't think will allow that to happen. Could you imagine... Russia and China being happy with that. I think we're in, we are essentially, effectively moving towards almost Cold War status again with a new axis of evil, in a sense. But again, I think that a diplomatic solution at this point is not going to happen because who can trust us to stay in the deal, first of all? So if Iran is not going to come back to the table and completely denuclearize, then I, I ask you again, what is the solution other than regime change? Well, regime change itself, I don't think, is the solution. I think uh, I think ultimately it will come down to soft power again, which is very uncomfortable and very Cold War-esque. But, uh, the, you know, unfortunately, Iran, with or without the deal, effectively becomes another proxy for uh, Russian-American power, I think. Uh, but I, I think the deal is ineffectual in that. But the United States has been throwing soft power at the situation since 1979, and it hasn't worked. What makes you think that it would work now? Between 1998 and 2002, they were researching capabilities to be able to actually create a nuclear weapon. They violated a non-proliferation treaty. Obviously, what the United States has been doing, scuttling deals between it and other nations, these sanctions that were put on in 2006, did nothing to actually stop the nuclear program itself. So I think that a different tactic is needed because soft power is not working, sanctions weren't working, and I don't know what else works other than, or I don't even think this would work necessarily, but what else 
solves this problem of a nuclear Iran other than a regime change at the hands of the United States. But we got to wrap up. Adam, what's your final thought here on the Iran nuclear deal? So given the way in which I've approached this issue, having not known about it and then reading almost primarily the pro-Trump line, I I know that I need to go back and read the other side. But there are still certain aspects of it that say to me that in terms of the short term, the US is almost effectively paying Iran to fund its opposition in the Middle East. And I, I think that is the main downside to the deal itself other people say the sunset clauses and you know i I think you're right i I don't think that world leaders would let uh, an iran who had the capability to produce a nuclear weapon within two to three weeks exist i think the deal would be long dead before it got to that point but this especially how much the middle east currently plays in global politics particularly between the u.s and russia it's just not in the u.s interest to be able to free up Iran to pursue its own agenda within the Middle East, both militarily and financially, however you you want to determine that. So I'm not as strictly against the deal as I've kind of put on. That's largely just out of the research. And like I said, I'll need to go back and read some of the the more affirming um, pro-deal literature uh, before really coming to a decision. Uh, but I, I I see the problems within the deal, and I'm not convinced that the benefit and loss equation is necessarily against Trump. I do think that the US could potentially stand to lose more with a military and financially active Iran in the Middle East. I get all that. And I am the first to admit that it's a flawed deal. Obviously, it's not perfect. There are no perfect diplomatic agreements between two countries. But I I think the fact that we have a diplomatic agreement with Iran, which we've never been able to have before, is a huge step in the right direction. And I do have the same concerns about the sunset provisions. I do have the same concerns about the breakout time after the deal. But those same concerns about the breakout time existed before the deal. I think that it's important for us to have open diplomatic relations and and do everything that we can to solve this peaceably. Because we've seen, you know, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, wars in the Middle East don't go well. And I, I want to avoid that at all costs. And if we can if we can do that at the same time as limiting Iran's nuclear capabilities and potentially limiting them in perpetuity in the future, I, I think this is a it's a good I view this as a good first step. I in no way view this as a final solution to this problem. But we'll we'll have to see where it goes. I mean, now that Trump has withdrawn, we'll see what happens between Iran and Europe. We'll see what sort of tensions come between the United States and, and Europe over this break here that is being essentially universally panned by the international community. So I think that this further isolates the United States, and I think that this does hurt our credibility when it comes to the nuclear negotiations with with North Korea, with any further nuclear negotiations with Iran. And I think diplomatically, maybe not militarily, but diplomatically, this puts us in a much worse position. One real quick thing I want to get to before we end today, though, you mentioned that your research methods brought you to a side of the news cycle that you don't normally frequent. And I want to talk about that because I think that it's so easy for people to fall into their bubbles and not realize what other people are saying about things. Yeah, that's right. About seven years ago now, I think it was, I came across a little report of someone that did a little bit of kind of self-experimentation. They were a Russian-American living in America, so they were fully Americanized and agree with the American way of life. But what they did is they set themselves the challenge of reading only Russian media, particularly Russian government media. And I think this is over about a period of 30 days. And what they found themselves doing over that month was beginning to convert effectively to the the Russian position. So I decided to take this little opportunity to read only conservative media. So I read the National Review, I read Breitbart, I read The Federalist, I read uh, IJR, um, I read a bunch of Israeli sources as well, um, I-24, what's the big one, Jerusalem Post, There's, there's a few out there that I can't remember the names of. And what I found really surprising is how much it really coloured my perspective of Trump's withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear deal, because of course this makes sense. And of course Iran is a double-dealing, dangerous actor on the world stage, and of course they're not using their nuclear 
capabilities for energy of course they're using them for weapons and you know as you read there is evidence there is you know really good argumentation that goes into you know staying with the deal or or leaving the deal and what really surprised me is given how much i tend to almost universally side with the left on these types of issues i find myself agreeing with the right and i find myself agreeing with trump and that was a really interesting position to be in because what it effectively could mean is that my entire perception of this issue is entirely wrapped up in the media that I've allowed myself to read. Because I feel like, if I was to look at myself, I feel right, I feel correct, I feel not passionately about it, but there, there's an element of me that says uh, that you know, what, what I am saying is true, not just in a factual sense, but in a, a moral sense, like in a, a very deeply uh, ethical sense. And that, that really shocked me. It really, really surprised me. And so it really begs the question, what are we doing? Or, or are we aware of the media bubbles that we put ourselves in? And are we aware of the facts and the arguments that we effectively give authority to influence us? And I, I, again, I was just, I was kind of shocked by it in a sense. And I was really shocked by it, particularly because of its implications. Effectively, even when we're doing the research, even when we're seeking truth, we still cannot determine truth. That's massive. That is a huge, huge problem. It's it's is the root of the postmodern conception of reality that we currently live in. Is that we can choose what values we have, and we will choose then the values that support our worldview. And not only that, our worldview will then be shaped by those chosen values. So what what is truth? Like, how do we get to truth? Like, even when we put in the research to find truth, we can't find truth. Uh, that absolutely shocked me, and and it was just over a couple a couple of days. Yeah, that's it's a it's a problem, but I think that this that's the value of something like this, this podcast, this conversation. When we were planning this episode, we did talk about how you were going to look exclusively for arguments against the deal, and I was going to look exclusively for arguments for it, so that we would be able to have this conversation. And I think there's value in that where you can have both perspectives presented in a rational, reasonable way that you can sort of find the middle ground because I think that it is true that there are there is a set of facts, but everybody comes to it with their own colored perception of what reality is. And if you can mix those colors and get a new shade in, in the middle, I think that's where you're more likely to find what's actually true about the situation. So having this conversation, I think that we can both see the benefits of the deal we can both see the downsides of the deal. And if we can approach that rationally and not in a biased way, I think that that's the way that political discourse has to happen. And sadly, we're moving away from that so quickly that it's, it's, that's not even a recognizable pattern in what we see today. So I think that the more people have these types of conversations, the more people are informed of both sides of the issue. That's hugely important. And I think that's a good place to end today's episode. If you enjoyed this deep dive and there's any particular topic that you'd like us to look at next month, you can submit that to us on our website. We have a contact form that you can send your suggestions to us. We'll review them and possibly pick your topic or news story for next month's deep dive. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Absurdistanis. We are also on YouTube as Absurdistan with an exclamation point. Be sure to check out our website, absurdistanis.com. That's A-B-S-U-R-D-I-S-T-A-N-I-S.com. We post all episodes to this website and also host forums for discussion so that you as the audience can engage with our content. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay informed.